0: The Chief of Naval Operations made it clear to Admiral Porterfield and I listen, the United States was just attacked by an enemy using a commercial air conveyance. And his words were were quite direct. We are not going to be attacked by an enemy using a commercial maritime conveyance. This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis.
1: Our guest today is Captain Tom Bortmus, United States Navy retired. He previously served as at the Department of Homeland Security as a member of the Senior Executive Service and Executive Director, Office of Intelligence in U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Captain Bortmus retired after 29 years in the United States Navy. He was a career intelligence officer with operations focused on Libya, Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, the Persian Gulf, and Somalia. In his last military assignment, Captain Bortmus commanded Office of Naval Intelligence in Suitland, Maryland from 2001 to 2004. As Com-ONI, he directed the Navy's intelligence response to the September 11, 2001 attacks in which eight ONI personnel lost their lives and was instrumental in shaping Navy support to Homeland Security, the Global War on Terror, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's the recipient of the Intelligence Community's National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal, the Naval Intelligence Community's Edward T, Edwin T. Layton Award, uh, Legion of Merit, three awards, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, two awards, Meritorious Service Medal, three awards, and many others. Captain Bortmus, welcome to Preble Hall. It's a pleasure to have you as my final guest on, on this uh, podcast.
0: Thank you, Claude. Very happy to be here.
1: You're from, uh, you're from the area.
0: I am. <laughs> Grew up in Baltimore, better, more specifically, Dundalk. But uh, my mother's family was uh, from Eastport. So.
1: so you were down here a lot when you were a kid.
0: Yeah, they used to send me down here in the summer times, uh, keep me from being arrested on the streets of Dundalk. So, um, yeah, my, my my mother's family had a long association working at various jobs here at the, at the academy. What'd she do? Um, well, my mother's family, uh, my family, I mean, back to my uh, great-grandfather, who is buried over here in the Naval Academy Cemetery, um, actually helped build uh, many of the buildings here. But uh, also, he and his uh, brother uh, were original members, uh, some of the early members, I should say, of the Navy band. Uh, Built the instruments, uh, mostly the woodwind instruments. Really? They were joiners, carpenters. uh, But they were also good German musicians, so, yeah. And my mother's brother was... uh, worked over in Bancroft Hall uh, after his uh, athletic scholarship uh, um, across the street over here um, uh, uh, was ended in th- with the fall in 1929 um, uh, he uh, came here and got a job as a steward at Bancroft Hall and retired 40 years later as chief steward over there so
1: what are your first memories of visiting the Naval Academy
0: uh, actually, running around in this museum. Um, like I said, there was, uh, <laughs> they sent me down here to keep me out of trouble, and as hard as I searched, there really wasn't any to find um, in the uh, southern town that was Annapolis in those days. So I would come over here and, with my mother and others, and we'd wander around. And I remember running around the halls here in the museum because I was fascinated by all the things that were here, including, at the time, some of the instruments my great-grandfather made. We need to track those instruments down. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Why'd you join the Navy? I couldn't find a job in the real world, um, uh, which is the short, facetious answer. But the actual answer is uh, my father served in the Navy. Uh, my brother, he served. My father actually although a corpsman in the Navy, and went ashore with the Marines in Nicaragua, one of the uh, San, anti-Sandinista efforts back in the late 20s. Um, He was, on his last tour, assigned to the Langley.
1: All right. Now, I I just gave a tour to to some people who were here visiting, and I went by our our model of the USS Langley, the first aircraft carrier. And I told them the story that you told me several years ago about what— the biggest medical problem your father treated on the Langley. Can you explain that?
0: And again, you have to remember my dad, who had several names and uh, could tell a really good story, might have embellished (laughs) things a bit, but he often treated uh, rope burns, actually from some of the early experiments with a resting gear.
1: So basically <laughs> sailors, sailors were hanging
0: gear. on to the end of these things <laughs> and uh, and also hanging on to the end of planes that were uh, you know, a- half over the deck and uh trying to pull as they refer to them then kites back on back on. <laughs> so yeah. His his version of it's pretty more colorful but uh, was was more colorful but uh yeah, he was on the Langley and, and uh So he felt that he had quite an association with naval aviation. And uh, my brother flew uh, in as a flight engineer, enlisted uh, in uh, P-5M seaplanes during the Korean conflict. Um, But he was stationed in Bermuda, so uh, (laughs) he had a charmed life um, flying up to do NATO exercises. so he had some tremendous stories as well. But the real the reason that, that's so why I had an association with the Navy, that and, and the, uh, the attachment over here at the academy, um, the, uh, the real reason was I, when I was in graduate school, the uh, day I started graduate school back in, uh, as, as the Earth's crust was cooling, um, the, uh, I, w- I sat down next to this guy in my first lecture, who happened to be a uh, seven and a half year POW uh, from the Vietnam era, and again, a naval aviator. Um, his name was Ed Davis, captain, um, now has passed on. But uh, uh, our meeting was very colorful, um, <laughs> uh, which uh, I could explain some other time. But um, Ed sort of adopted me. He missed a lot, so he needed to be tutored. We were in international or foreign affairs, as it was called at UVA, um, both going for our master's degree. He'd missed quite a bit. Um, which, of course, I didn't realize. I didn't know who he was when I first sat down next Mm -hmm. to him. And uh, so we had a great relationship established. Uh, Both of us had uh, wives and a brand new baby. And uh, the deal was that uh, I tutored him in everything that had transpired in the seven and a half years he'd missed um, in world events. And uh, he fed us (laughs) on weekends. (laughs) It was a great deal for me.
1: Now, when you, did you, when you were commissioned in the Navy, you went, you went OCS.
0: I went to AOCS, Pensacola.
1: Did you go direct to Intel?
0: Um, yeah, I did. That was an option. Although I went to Pensacola, um, like again, Ed was an aviator, so he uh, had set me up with uh, the Norfolk office and another, as they referred to themselves, Jailbird, um, who, his name I think was Galanti. And uh, So I had a pretty good idea of uh, that there was a strong, the test, the entrance test to get in was uh, very heavily weighted in terms of naval aviation. And so basically, Ed taught me to fly um, on weekends. And so the spatial aptitude and so on problems were were not an issue. And uh, so I did pretty well on the uh, exam. And uh, the two naval aviators in Hyattsville that were the recruiters that gave me the exam were all excited because uh, they thought they had another pilot candidate. Um, I had to tell them that, hey, I, you know, I really don't have 2020 vision. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, that's okay. You can be a naval flight officer. I had no earthly idea what an NFO was. but uh, So I went to Pensacola, and I told them I'd like to be an intelligence officer. So I went down there as a naval flight officer candidate slant. Um, aviation officer intelligence um, candidate. When was this? That was 1976. Um, so I got down there in March of 76, uh, just as my second child was being born. Thank goodness, as a starving graduate student, um, the Navy picked up the, uh, all the expenses, and, and I, my intention was to do four years. They tried very hard to make me a naval flight officer, and then when I realized what a naval flight officer was, um, not being a trusting soul uh, and realizing i wouldn't have any controls in my own hands (laughs) i said no thanks i'll stick with intelligence
1: (laughs) what was your what were some of your favorite assignments in your intelligence career
0: in the intelligence career uh uh, the two command assignments uh, were obviously you know the best um, and a little unusual for most intelligence officers to get To get command first and then to have two uh, was, you know, um, it was quite a privilege for me. My first tour, it was in a fighter squadron, which was always the most memorable. It was a remarkable squadron, uh, the Top Hatters, at the time, VF 14. The F 14 was a brand new, pretty much brand new aircraft. Um, And so it was a remarkable ready room. Um, I think, as I've told you before, a ready room of 24 or so officers, um, and I was there for 38 months. Um, there were seven flag officers out of that ready room, um, three three stars. Um, so that was uh, that was a those were a group of a group of individuals and a squadron. Uh, again, this is just post Vietnam. Uh, still in the kind of transition to the what we would refer to as the modern Navy at the time. They were just exceptional men of the, of the group. Like I said, seven flag officers, one astronaut. And I think every officer that did a career, that stayed and did a career, which was probably more than half of those ready rooms I was in uh, from 77 to, to uh, 80, I think every one of us, regardless of pilot, NFO, uh, intelligence officer, supply officer, maintenance duty officer, I think everyone got command.
1: I have some students who have gone, graduated, become intelligence officers immediately, gone right to the squadron. What do you think has changed in the past 40 years with regard to a junior officer working with a squadron? And I know you've been out for a bit, but what do you think are timeless lessons that you learned from, say, the late 70s, early 80s doing that?
0: Well, I, I think first and foremost was something that one of our community stellar leaders, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, used to always say when asked, hey, you know, I'm the intelligence officer, but I have all these other jobs, which really don't have anything to do with intelligence. And uh, Inman's response to people that always raised that, and someone always did, <laughs> um, was do whatever it takes do your job, do it well, and do whatever else it takes to make you indispensable in that squadron, that brings you closer to, the, to those in the squadron. Um, and some of those things were, you know, I, I happened to, I had the joy of being the legal officer <laughs> as one of my collateral duties uh, with uh, 100 plus you know, enlisted men at the time um, at a time in the Navy when uh, there were a lot of problems in the Navy in the in the mid to late 70s, um, mostly related to drugs that had to be you know taken care of. So, but one of the other things was uh, was because I'd gone through ACA, AOCs and had been through pressure chamber checks, uh, survival training, SEER school, all of the things that the aviators you have to go to. And at the time, intel officers used to go through the first six or eight weeks of uh, VT-10, which was NFO training. So, you know, basic navigation and so on, we'd all gone, gone through. I was seat checked. Um, at the time, we were always short of naval flight officers, uh, NFOs, RIOs in, in that squadron. And so I became the spare Rio, which, uh, you know, was enjoyable when you were very enjoyable and quite a learning experience and also made me realize that all those things we as intelligence officers were asking these guys to do for us, you know, really did take a second, took a second seat to... Hey, I got to fly this airplane. I've got to figure out where I am, and I got to get home safely, and I got to conduct my mission successfully. So um, that helped tremendously for me. Uh, it it allowed me to relate in in ways that others you know didn't. So it was doable then. I'm not sure it's doable anymore. Obviously with single-seat aircraft, but but you know it was one of those things that that I think they realized that, hey, this guy is can do things more than and Just you know, brief us on the weather before we go out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I
1: agree. I'll tell you. I think that was one of the. There was something you said at O and I. I must have picked up on when I went when I deployed in uh, two thousand four, two thousand five on the Bunker Hill as the intel officer, and you know I was conning officer, and I learned I was down in CIC and you know SICWO and you know doing all the standard uh, trainings that everybody else was, and but I worked pretty closely with the helo detachment, but I found that. Like you said, if if I was on the bridge, and or if I was down with the the um, the Hilo detachment, I was learning what they do, so it helped me do my job better to serve them.
0: Yeah, you you really have to be able to relate, and and that kind of colored the rest of my career, which is why I mentioned it as as a, a, a favorite tour. I mean, a great time. It was first tour, um, and it was. Ooh, this, I guess I did two full deployments and part of another in 38 months. And uh, in between those deployments, because at the time we were expanding the Navy, you know, we were moving into the 600 ship Navy, but you, know, you couldn't deliver the aircraft that fast. And so squadrons and air wings were moved from deck to deck. And so uh, you know, we went out pretty regularly. You know,
1: that raises an interesting question because you, know, you and I had heard Admiral Mack Showers, you know, a legend in the intelligence community because he worked um, during World War II on, right. on all those major battles in, in Pac-Fleet. And he, what's, what struck me with Admiral Showers is how few staff there were in, in Pac-Fleet for, for, for Intel. With the 1980s, were there growing pains with regard to the intelligence, naval intelligence community?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, it really begins in the mid-70s, late 70s, I would say. But the realization by about 77 to 78 that we were getting and beginning to receive a kind of exquisite intelligence, very good information. And at the time, as hard as it is to believe today, in that squadron of, you know, 25 or less than 30 officers that I was in, only myself and the squadron CO were cleared above the TS level. So when when you talked about compartmented clearances, uh, guys couldn't, you had this great information, but who were you gonna tell? Um, And so the Navy realized, and I think the intelligence community's greatest accomplishment was making the Navy realize uh, that hey, uh, if we're going to do this, we have to do two things. First, we have to clear far more people than we currently have clear operators now. I'm talking about, and secondly, we have to create and pay for uh, establish the secure communications necessary to get the information to them to the pointy end of the spear that we have to get to them, and so uh, I lived that first part, my first two tours, um, which was you know getting everybody up on the step uh, and saying, hey, here's the threat we're facing, here's how here's what we really know, here's, here's how we know it, and, and you guys need to be aware that when we're telling you this, um, this isn't just me going into a corner with a couple of textbooks and becoming an expert on the Soviet Union.
1: <laughs> you served in Japan for a while, right?
0: I served going to Japan, but yeah. not in Japan. As the pack fleet into, I spent a great deal of time in Japan working with the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force.
1: What was your most memorable experience working with them?
0: <laughs> um, first off, how, what a great... Uh, people may not realize there are any number of intelligence exchange arrangements and that have been going on for a long time. Uh, and they happen at all levels from the national levels down to the service elements. And so the Navy had a long established relationship. Um, the realization that, hey, uh, this Defense Force might not be the United States Navy, but it has quite a remarkable history. And they have just exquisite um, insight, information, access to the region. It's their home. Uh, It's their home field. And they know it quite well, and they were willing to exchange it. it. I went there probably, eight or nine times in the three years I was there in Japan. And they, of course, reciprocated coming to Hawaii, but um, the working relationship was outstanding. And the most remarkable experience was at the end, um, as I took my relief, who happened to be the first uh, woman fleet intelligence officer um, in the Pacific uh, Fleet, I believe in any fleet, uh, Captain Barbara Boyer. who. Uh, I went to Japan with uh, everyone was concerned about um the Asian mindset when it comes to you know u you know, s naval officers being women. Um, Barbara was remarkable and won them all over in the first you know sake session but um we uh, i had the i had the honor of being taken um to one of the restaurants, as a matter of fact the only remaining restaurant uh that the Imperial Navy and Admiral Yamamoto himself used. Um, they, would, they would dine there um, and then go back to their offices in, Rap- in, the, in Japan, back to their uh, Tokyo offices to continue to do various planning, et cetera. But it was quite a distinction um, being taken there, apparently, for them. Of course, to me, it was just another Japanese restaurant until we got in there. And uh, now I've forgotten all the formal names. but. The calligraphy that Japanese uh, samurai practiced, etc, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of scrolls uh, of these of this calligraphy, including those by Yamamoto, Togo and and pretty much everybody in between um, and the, uh, the uh, woman who owned the restaurant and a very elderly lady, very elegantly dressed in her kimono, would uh, arrange to have a little viewing of uh, six or eight of these. Um, by the individuals and others that I've named. And, and that was, you know, it was quite a moment. I realized that uh, in typically Japanese fashion, the more understated the honor is, the, the greater it is in their mind. You know, and, and it, was, it was a remarkable evening.
1: When did you take command of Office of Naval Intelligence?
0: I took command um, in July of 19, um, or excuse me, July of 2001, ju- just prior to 9-11. i had been over in the OPNAV staff working for the Director of Naval Intelligence, managing his budget and uh, and programs, plans, et cetera. Uh, something my wife always found hilarious, uh, me managing a, you know, billion-dollar-plus uh, uh, financial plan and program when I haven't had the checkbook in my own possession and my own family since... Uh, since I left college, you know, so, uh, so, I went over then thinking it would be, you know, great opportunity. Command you can't turn it down. It's the Navy's flagship intelligence command. You know, it would be one of those. This will look great on my resume when I retire. Um, what could possibly happen? You know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> what do you remember most about? first thing in that morning?
0: Beautiful day. I mean, it's it's become almost a cliche now, but it was just a remarkable day. And I remember driving in early um, about, I don't know, uh, 5.30, something to that effect, um, thinking, oh man, this is gonna be a beautiful day. And that my focus was on a meeting that was gonna be later that day on what the biggest biggest problem (laughs) that I thought I had and that Naval Intelligence uh, had, which was um, lack of analysts. Uh, we, you know, of course, as you know, ONI is uh, 60 plus percent civilian, um, and and so it's not just a military command. And the problem was um, we were now beginning to receive, uh, we are continuing to receive greater amounts of very fine intelligence, but but getting to analyze it, trying to put it all together, trying to realize what does it all mean and who do we tell? <laughs> And how do we tell them? Uh, we, did just, we didn't have the horsepower. I thought that was you know, going to be my the problem I'd chew on for the two years I was there. And if I could help accomplish uh, some sort of resolution or solution, mitigation, at least, to that problem, I would be okay. Uh, and of course, things got very different very fast.
1: Now, there was a morning brief from the Pentagon, right? Uh, were you taking that in your, were you in your office?
0: We, uh, not in my office, but we had a thing we called the bubble, which was, uh, a secure area where we were watching the briefing and we had a piece of that brief from O&I, um, which went over secure cable to the Pentagon. And so we listened, we listened to the part that, the D- Director of Naval Intelligence was briefed and then we As Am- Admiral Porterfield. Pieces. And that was Admiral Porterfield at the time, who I knew because I had worked with him in Hawaii. When I was at Pack Fleet and too, he was the CO, commander of uh, what was then Joint Intelligence Center Pacific, and then he later became the Joint Intelligence Officer for what was then U.S. Pacific Command. We were, and and he didn't, he, uh, the first thing about the briefing was he was not there. He was on the Hill testifying that day uh, on the Capitol building, and um, his deputy, uh, Miss Dishlong, uh, was taking, taking the briefing, and uh, so we were, Watching the briefing, I remember quite dis- it was a you know good morning briefing. Um, I'm watching uh, as someone comes in, you know, the ubiquitous Intel officer, the head actually of the uh, intelligence we called intelligence plot
1: as Commander uh, Dan Shanauer.
0: as Dan Shanauer came in and handed a note to Tish Long and basically and the note obviously read, and I got a note handed to me sh- by one of my guys shortly thereafter that the first uh, plane had flown into the Twin towers.
1: but at that point, when you're handed the note, did you have an indication that that was a terrorist attack, or
0: no? We had no information other than it was a plane, a small plane had hit the towers before, um, just a flight accident, loss of control, something to that effect, and so you know it got your interest right away. But uh, and, but uh, that wasn't the that wasn't the issue. Uh, we were we didn't know what it was. No further information. NFI, as is always stated, uh, then. As the briefing was progressing, we had uh, one of my guys had uh, turned on in the bubble the CNN. We were looking at the building, and we were realizing this wasn't a small airplane. We actually were able to, during the brief view, the second plane fly into the— because the cameras were live on it, on the towers, and we watched that one fly in. So uh, at that point, (laughs) we were real clear uh, that this wasn't going to be a normal day.
1: What's the first thing you did after that?
0: Well, the first thing was uh, I did was recommend to the Deputy uh, DNI that uh, I think we need to end this brief. People forget that O and I is a you know 40-acre base, and re- you have responsibilities as a base commander. And so, you know, I was worried about you know what was going to be the you know the alert con, uh, where were we, uh, what was Naval District Washington going to issue, um, and as you know, reports started to fly very quickly at that point. Many of them, most of them erroneous, but regardless, uh, the first thing was for the people in the building and the concern for what are my responsibilities, what are we doing? Are we, you know, as we say today, locking this place down or what are we going to do? Which you did. Well, we, uh, we, yeah, the very, when we, when it was evident this was a terrorist attack and that there were other planes um, that were not responding to requests from the controllers, those commercial controllers that, Okay. You know we have to do something, and uh, Naval uh, Naval District of Washington were kind of, I don't know whether made their own decision or whether they were responding to higher higher decisions in the area. But it was to empty the building, let's get get the people out of here first off, uh, which led to a its own set of interesting developments. Um, we realized that we had plenty of plans uh, to evacuate the building in case of fire or earthquake or other calamity, uh, but ONI is a base within a, within a federal compound. I realized very quickly when I got a call from my colleague, a captain uh, uh, who headed uh, the NOAA detachment uh, there um, uh, at ONI, mostly tracking ICE edge and stuff. Uh, I remember her calling and saying, um, hey, uh, the, you know, there's no plan for evacuating the federal compound. And nobody seems to be doing anything. <laughs>
1: There were a lot of people outside at the time, too, because I, I remember, uh, yeah. of course, Naval Intelligence in Suitland is not too—I mean, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from now. What, what's called now called Joint Base Andrews. Right. And we're all watching the jets flying right. And right out of there.
0: Everybody's staring up, and everybody's wondering what happens if one of these guys— if there are more, and they can't hit their primary target, and they, you know, so they see some—they've you know, already done their research and reconnaissance. They know there's a military facility you know what happens if we're the secondary or tertiary target? You know, no one knew any of that. It was not, not probably not real, but but we did not know that at the time. So the the direction came from uh, Naval District Washington Commander to evacuate the buildings, which we then did. But evacuating my building did no good if we couldn't get people off the compound. The major problem was all the first. You know, so all the we figured all the police, all the state police, the county police, et cetera, would be responding, you know, to other issues perhaps. And of course, by this time, we're in, we're beginning to get, we're, we're finding out about that the Pentagon has now been hit. So fortunately, Illinois had its own police force, not not commercially, you know, leased um, arrangements with, with uh, security companies, but... We had our own police force, and many of these guys. This was a retirement job. They were all former New York, New Jersey, Washington D.C., Maryland, etc. Police officers, and so I remember uh, directing my guys to get a hold of the county uh, first off the the state police, and then and then the county police, which basically said, "Hey." Um, We need some help here to secure traffic on the main thoroughfares going into and out of this compound (laughs) so we can get off. Otherwise, it's just going to be we're going to flood the streets, going to be a giant mess. And then saying, hey, Pentagon's been struck. we, we, We don't have the we don't have the manpower to spare for that. You're on your own, more or less the short version. So
1: who is with you when you're making these decisions, when you're getting the information?
0: Yeah, the the front office staff Uh, i had an executive assistant i had a deputy first and foremost uh, who was a reserve reserve uh tar um, at the time who named steve saya who gave did tremendous service that day along with uh, the civilian members of the front office staff kind of jumped right in um, gathered the information we directed them i had a police chief so you know we got the chief up there and we said look get your guys out take control of the streets Um, You're not going to have any interference from the state or the local, and you're not going to have any help either, but someone's got it. And so we went to all the entrances, not just to O&I, but to the compound, Um, (laughs) kind of took over control of the streets and moved the traffic and got people out of there. There was no evacuation plan even in O&I to you know we our plan was to get out and away from the building stand in appropriate clusters and but we didn't have any plan for everybody get to the garage get to your car get off the base don't go towards dc uh the bridges et cetera, and accesses are flooded or closed you know you're going to be in the way go 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 get find a friend who lives in maryland and go there
1: do you remember going over the one mc the, the speaker system oh
0: yeah that was the other thing the one mc i you know again uh, one of the things that never came up in my turnover and despite the fact that this was my fourth tour in Suitland, uh, first one in this new building, uh, I didn't even know there was a one MC. And I'm thinking, well, good, we don't have a plan. Nobody knows what to do. How in the world are we going to tell people, you know, they'll have to send runners, you know, <laughs> to each floor? Um, and when Steve Say said, you know, sir, we have a one MC. <laughs> so uh, so then it was just a matter of coming on the one MC, uh, telling people what we knew. Uh, being as we call transparent today, but, you know, just making sure they understood. Hey, I don't have any additional information than what I'm about to tell you. Um, I don't know of any specific threats to us, but I do know what the direction is uh, from our bosses, and, you know, here's how we're going to do this.
1: I was on my two weeks of AT, of reserve AT, at I. That was my second day. It was a Tuesday morning. And I remember that clearly. And I just remember your voice coming over the 1MC, and how calm it was, and matter of fact, and you're just saying, okay, there are the facts, folks. That's what we know. Let's go out and do our jobs. That's what I remember from a, from a leadership lesson that I think midshipmen need to understand as well. Stay, stay calm.
0: Yeah, yeah you know, it's the old adage, you know. I mean, what do you, you know, it, it, it's not going to be a crisis for everyone else if it's not a crisis for you. Right. Um, and pe- that's mean,
1: exactly what people did. People yeah. went right back. To work they were starting to yeah. do their analysis they were trying to do research what is going on out there
0: right and uh, so it was a matter then of trying to figure out okay um, what do we do you know um, after we get people out of here how long are they going to be out of here but the, the realization then came very clearly that that uh, where the aircraft impacted the Pentagon was most probably uh, where the the director of Naval Intelligence offices and the the uh, in CNOs, the Chief of Naval Operations Intelligence Plot, um, who were they reported to me um, where the where you know that was the, it was their area. And so And
1: there were several O and I employees as well who were there doing briefs there, there were, and analysis. Absolutely
0: they were all they they worked for the Director of Naval Intelligence and but they were O and I people and uh, and under my command. And so the object then was, okay, what's the story? And of course Admiral Porterfield is um, in the uh, in the Capitol building, which is being evacuated, and uh, because of concerns that there was an additional aircraft, uh, the one that I guess eventually went into Shanksville, that could be directed to the Capitol building, and so um, it was then a matter of communicating while well, we're doing all this with him um, via his cell phone, trying to keep him um, and Admiral Porterfield, uh, captain the. Uh, I think 1972 football team here. One of the captains, um, he was on his way, you know, running and in, in his dress blues, running and walking back to the Pentagon, because there was no way to get a car through any of the streets uh, after pandemonium hit. It is much like the stories of Pearl Harbor. There were there were reports that were later confirmed in quotations um, of uh, car bombs at the State Department, additional bombs going off in various pieces, various places along the Mall. And so, you know, the usual pandemonium fog of war. So once again, the object, I mean, there were people at and I I mean, they, you know, they were civilians and many of them had never seen, you know, the, any sort of, any sort of the, these types of things come to them in their own country. And they were, they were upset. So the object was, let's get the building emptied. Let's take care of keeping the boss informed. Most importantly, let's find out what's happened in the Pentagon. We communications with them dropped
1: what kind of people did you retain that day at naval intelligence yeah that was uh what, what's considered like the emergency crew that you needed to yeah keep? The, the
0: the the first off was the security team that, that we had which was i was very fortunate um with the chief of police and the, the division that they reported to um and in the, in the leaders there, also, the, of course, the front office type, my senior uh, heads of our analytic department, I was then called ONI-2, uh, Captain John Hedlund, um and, you know, for fear of not giving credit to a lot of people who deserve it, um, you know, several others, but the object was get the people out of your building. And testament to these civilians and officers alike and enlisted that were at ONI, I mean, we literally had to order them, some of them, out of the building. Um, they did not want to leave their posts. Um, and then we had to very quickly scramble to come up with, um, so, so what's our recall plan? You know, what's, what's our mission now going to be? How can we best contribute? But then the realization came that, of course, uh, Ceno Intel plot uh, was, in fact, where the nose of the aircraft wound up next to the uh, kind of Army Command Center there were people there uh, we couldn't, they couldn't find, they couldn't communicate with. Of course, here now is a major issue. How does the Chief of Naval Operations and the OpNav staff get their information on what's going on? Uh, And so that then became another key concern. Luckily at ONI, we had a very large IT department um, responsible for kind of global secure communications. And... I mean, it was a Navy Captain Mark Greer who um, stepped up with his staff, and we very quickly realized that CNO Intel plot, the members that's, the surviving members, had to function from somewhere, and they also they also needed to be reconstituted. So that became an immediate day, I mean, hour like two concern. Um, particularly when we realized that, yeah, it was, and spaces were destroyed. And so we weren't, you know, they had to operate from somewhere. Um,
1: So you reconstituted at Suitland?
0: Well, that was our first option, was we were gonna, you know, put them at Suitland. We had a very small watch. We had a huge watch floor with tremendous capacity, but we had a (laughs) two-man watch um, at the time. We were not in the indications and warning business um, at ONI at the time. And so, we had space, we had the equipment, um, we helped reconstitute, when the Director of Naval Intelligence made a decision, we helped reconstitute uh, Intel plot, both with equipment and people, uh, over at um, the Annex Marine Corps headquarters at the time, just opposite the Pentagon. Uh, and butted up against Arlington Cemetery, so we went over there. They, we went over there. I mean, that night, trucks of. I mean, that afternoon, trucks of stuff were arriving, and they went. My our guys went over and wired it up, hooked it up.
1: Was there any concern about putting that there because the plane that hit the Pentagon flew right over? Yeah. The Marine Annex.
0: Yeah, there was, but the, once the decision was made, mm-hmm. and the CNO, uh, you know, decided he was going to you know, operate from there or, or stay in his offices in the Pentagon. Um, I mean, we we went to work, yes, sir, and uh, and off they went. So things that you know, you, the earlier question about an intelligence officer, you know, like is this analysis, is this predicting what's going to occur, uh, or is this, you know, what is this? Well, this is wire, wire, dragging wires and hooking up machines, which fortunately in our careers most of us. Have had to do in some capacity, and and so we had guys trained in in all of this area, and and off they went, uh, Mark Greer in particular, and did a you know just a tremendous job.
1: What were some of the other major changes you made immediately after 9/11 to make sure that the Office of Naval Re- Intelligence was responding to what had become a warrant error?
0: First and foremost was uh, a very direct conversation that the Chief of Naval Operations. Uh, um, had with uh, Admiral Porterfield, um, and then you know with me present, and he of course was being taken into a variety of meetings with the Joint Chiefs and as a member and and uh, with the Secretary um, Rumsfeld, um, and you know Secretary Rumsfeld was listening. What are we? How are we going to respond to this? You know the President needs options. What are our options, et cetera? Um, once it became clear that this was a terrorist attack and this was most probably linked to al-Qaeda. You know, the, the initial things that you know, came up were all the things that we normally did. Right? We were going to go destroy their camps in Afghanistan. Um, we were going to do all, all we could to eliminate their presence wherever they might be, as we had done in the past. And Secretary Rumsfeld responded rather <laughs> in, in his usual. Uh, as only he could, um, that, hey, I know we're going to do that, but, you know, what are we going to do after that? What if this becomes, you know, a, what became known later as a global war against terror? Um, and so the Chief of Naval Operations made it clear to Admiral Porterfield and I, listen, the United States was just attacked by an enemy using a commercial air conveyance. And his words were, were quite direct. We are not going to be attacked by an enemy using a commercial maritime conveyance, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, what do we know about al-Qaeda and the maritime regime? The first direction was, uh, fortunately, and, and again, one of those serendipitous moments. I uh, had the good luck of working with an old colleague. And when I first arrived at ONI, he had retired and had become a civilian, was working, uh, I believe, still as a contractor at the time um, at ONI and then to become a government employee. And uh, he said, hey, when I first got there, this would have been in June, in July, or very beginning of August. I asked him what he was doing. I ran into him in the passageway, asked him what he was doing. He said, hey, I'm working on Al-Qaeda's use of the seas. And I said, well, haven't we already done that? And his answer was remarkably, no, we haven't really given it much attention. So he had come up a couple days later and gave me the briefing, um, and it was really remarkable. He said, I, "I can't confirm all of this yet, but from open-source information, mostly taken from court trials, of Al Qaeda logisticians, we're pretty." Con-. I said, "I'm, I'm kind of convinced that Al Qaeda. it doesn't have a navy; it doesn't have its own commercial fleet, but it is using the maritime domain, the commercial maritime domain. What in the past we referred to as smuggling or or black market, which of course in most of the world is just." Considered business, Um, and and his position was I believe Al Qaeda is using the seas to transport first off weapons, munitions, obtain and move uh, to cells. Secondly, to to in place cells of terrorists in various places, Um, and then finally to make money. They have legitimate and illicit cargos and goods. And they are selling them, and the money is going directly into their coffers. So, when the CNO made this, uh, w- at the time was Admiral Vern Clark um, made this. When when he made the request of us, you know about the commercial maritime conveyance, Admiral Porterfield. I had had a brief opportunity to tell him, you know, that hey, this is this is we've got this nascent analyses. I think that's where we can contribute the most in addition to you know the tomahawk and and tack air strikes that were going to come off our carrier decks and all out of our submarines and service units that's where and so that's where that's where we went how does al-qaeda use the seas can we possibly intercept that how can we deny them the uh unencumbered use of the maritime domain
1: now i know i have to be careful with this with this next question because you know we're, we're both under certain obligations but can you discuss uh, maybe a couple of things that came to fruition that became publicly uh,
0: Yeah. Um, so back to the CNO's direction, one of the first things was in the same building, the, Na- the National Maritime Intelligence Center, where ONI is housed, was also the Coast Guard's premier intelligence unit. And uh, I had a counterpart there, also a captain, And um, our first concern, of course, uh, based on the CNO's direction was, how do we identify shipping, commercial shipping, that may have some links to terror um, and, and find a way to ensure that they don't come into our ports until they're appropriately inspected and cleared. And so that was step one. Remember, at the time, there was no U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Um, the Customs Service was still in existence. There wasn't no Department of Homeland Security. And so someone had to be responsible for maritime commercial maritime security. And uh, the Coast Guard said, hey, you know, we, we kind of know how to do this, but we certainly don't have the manpower, the staff, uh, you know, or even the, the, the culture to go down this road. But together, you know, maybe we can. So that's that's what we did we We joined forces and we had to identify those coming in. so we started identifying all shipping that we thought might have some link no matter how remote, and ensuring that they were boarded and inspected, or in some cases denied access. Secondly, uh, you know so that was the home game. you know how do we how do I stay true to the c and o 's direction and then the second part was the away game. How do we now shift I's culture from essentially, at the time, having become gatherers to, uh, of intelligence and information and warning people, making them aware, how do we shift that to being hunters? We started this process, and we partnered with a number of entities, uh, most particularly the Department of the Treasury, and their, and their people who track money and others. Um, in in the uh, interagency and we started working on Establishing companies who did Al Qaeda use what companies Where many of these companies were no more than post-office boxes in in Places around the world. Yeah, so um, so it was the home game and the away game uh, all had to be worked through right away And, and so we did that but and so some some things that came out of course the United States Navy had a business of taking The offensive and going after things, the idea of being a global um, interceptor of commercial shipping—you know what we now call—you know VBSS and other um, things—which we had done historically, you know, throughout throughout our history of our navy. all of a sudden it was realized that, hey, there's this organization called NATO and they're and, you know, they looking for a role in this too. Uh, my key my head analyst and I, um, it was named Frank Gutierrez, we then went and briefed the chiefs of defense of NATO at their biannual or whatever they were meetings. I happened to catch one in, Bru- in Brussels. And we presented, this was months later, of course, we had a much more established um, intelligence record and so we went and briefed and they then started to assume the maritime intercept operations um really uh, from the mid to the indian ocean um and even in some cases in the atlantic so they uh they took that on and we became suppliers of information for them one of the events that came out was a ship that was traveling from the middle east from the uh from the middle east the true middle east um to I believe, to somewhere in Italy, but it was going into Sicily first, typical commercial conveyance. We realized the ship had far more merchant mariners than the crew normally had. And uh, then there were other links that led us to intercept the ship, that led for, for the Italians to intercept the ship. Um, and there was a cell of 15 people who had a hell of a lot more cash than they should have had. This, these guys were being sent to conduct an operation in Europe, and yeah, um, that was one that was uh, advertised in the—well, in the, it was brought out in the newspapers. It was quite, a, quite an event. You know, uh, for us, we'd had previous confirmation that we, you know, we were not making things up or seeing uh, boogeymen when they didn't exist. Um, but again, uh, these guys, al-Qaeda, were so clever. I mean, they were using what was there, commercial, invisible. Uh, it was invisible because we saw it every day and we didn't have the capacity or, or, or the interest in going through all of that. Um, one of the things that came out of all those boardings was all of that information was sent back to O&I, all the information obtained. Of course, you interviewed crew members, you copied documents, you, and then that had to be gone through by herb linguists. And I should have started this by saying, O&I could not have done all of this with its manning. So fortunately, O&I had... At the time, I believe 10 reserve units um, of nearly a thousand people, and uh, we were able to call on them. Uh, the nation mobilized a great many of them, like yourself, and we were able to bring them into ONI. Uh, remarkable talent, remarkably talented people, and it was through their expertise, uh, from language to Middle East culture to uh, you know, experience with just the commercial world of shipping. The world was our oyster. Yeah, it's, it's
1: it's really amazing when you see that talent, and I mean, I think there were some that were that had worked for the Treasury Department as a civilian or before, and had had since gone on to other things that could they could then bring to the table.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, remarkable. um I, I had a long association with the Navy the Navy Reserve Intelligence Program, and have always been a fan. Uh, I'm not saying that just because you're bigger than I am and you're sitting across <laughs> the table. Um, it was. Uh, just tremendously talented people in a program that goes way back, but I was always more interested in not what the individual's duties were in the reserve unit they were attached to. I was always more interested in what did they do in the real world, what was their area of expertise, and uh, if we needed it, how do I get my hands on them?
1: No, I think that was one of the biggest lessons after 9-11 is when we were all mobilized, we weren't doing anything that that we had been trained to do, and I think that's even true today. You're, You're very rarely going on active duty related to what what you've done in in your reserve unit
0: yeah it was it was tremendous and uh, of course one of the key problems uh, was you know where is all this going you know as we realized this thing was evolving into a global war on terror you know what was going to be next and you know look at all the amazing things uh, the investigation results um, the commission results 9-11 commission and and where we went so fortunately we had guys like yourself and several others who had worked on the hill um, and I remember forming something we euphemistically referred to as the futures unit, you know, and their object was my direction to them was very simple. I don't want to be surprised. Um, um, here I am, the intel officer. That's normally the direction to yeah, me.
1: The terrorism but, red cell.
0: Yeah. So what are these, you know, uh, what's coming up next? What are we going to be asked to do?
1: Yeah. No, no that was uh, really fascinating work that we were doing that, that year. And, the, again, the talent when you're talking a broad group of EOD guys who had been FBI uh, people who had been SWOs for 20 years um, although the <laughs> I, have to, I have to say uh, skipper is one one time I was putting something together and we had a couple of two human uh, human intelligence analysts who were briefing you and they had gone up to to brief you I had stayed I was doing something else and they came back and, and they said you're not going to like it I was like what do you mean I thought I thought this analysis was great for Captain Bortmas. You know what, what's not to like? He said they said no, he loved it. I was like, well, what's the problem? They said, well, he wants the three of us to get he wants the three of us to get on a plane tomorrow to go to X Y Z, and you're coming with us. I'm like, wait a minute, this is because they knew they knew I really was not a fan of flying. <laughs> and I said,
0: <laughs> Captain Bortmas. <laughs> so that was also an interesting experience. But we, um, we, we did a lot of that. We did a lot yeah. of going to others who had experience with terror. Um, you know, from, from the Brits to the Israelis mm-hmm. to others. And, and you know, you had to be there in person.
1: Um, and it shows the, col- and, the and importance of collaboration oh, oh, with, yeah. with not only other government agencies, but with other with, countries.
0: With partners and allies. Yeah. And, and
1: That's a good lesson for today with China, isn't it?
0: It's a tremendous lesson. Always, always, you know, what did Bismarck say, you know, when told from, by someone that uh, he was very proud of himself because he had learned from his mistakes, and Bismarck's response was, something to the effect of only a fool learns from his mistakes. I, learn, I prefer to learn from someone else's. And, uh, and so we didn't have the time. And so when we had the opportunity to go and talk with a number of nations, and a lot of this uh, due to the Director of Naval Intelligence Admiral Porterfield's work with the uh, Foreign Attaché Corps here in town, um, we, were, we were able to leapfrog over pitfalls that had befallen them and in the past and and I learned we we learned a great deal I mean a tremendous amount in
1: your three and a half four years as commander of o and I what were the biggest lessons that you learned that you might be able to convey to today's intelligence officers
0: yeah and 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 to to naval officers period okay one is know your people I mean there's just know who they are if you there's no substitute for experience. There is there is none. I mean, we live in a world that's transfixed by those who rise, you know, instantaneously and to senior positions. I'm a believer in the old apprenticeship program. You know, do your time. Uh, know what they do. You can't lead people you don't know. And, and the second thing, I guess, that I learned primarily from my boss, uh, Admiral Porterfield, was the necessity to keep faith with those you lead. And uh, I think Marines get this very early in their careers because they're out there with them, and bad things happen. Okay, But if your people know, people you are responsible for, know that you will keep faith with them, and that you will give them a fair shake no matter how bad they might screw something up. if, if they know that you're able to deduce that something, they did something maybe not 100% kosher because they were trying to do the right thing, they know that you know that and you'll figure that out and you'll keep faith with them. They'll, and, and then if they also know that if the very worst happens, that you and the Navy will keep faith with the people they love the most, their families. Then they'll do anything for you, and they'll work any kind of hours. They'll be they'll be creative in ways they never thought they could be creative, um, and uh, and and you know your job as the guy in you know in charge will be immeasurably easy, easier. Um, but you know, they need to know that, and so they they, they can't know that if you're not out and about with them. And I'm not talking standing in a podium or on a stage with a microphone in your hand doing your best Oprah routine. Uh, I'm talking about wearing the old-fashioned lead-by-wearing-out shoe leather. Um, if you're out there with them and you know what they're doing and they know you know, um, when they come to you, they're not going to be, be performing any CYA dances. Um, they know, you, you, you know they can't fool you. Um, and because you've done it, you know, and, uh, and you'll be okay. I mean, it'll work out, and they'll work out. They'll, Like I said, ne- and again, one last thing on this score, never underestimate your people. Ne- they, even when everything in you tells you, oh my Lord, what am I gonna do with this person? You know, or this person, not the person I wanna give that job to. Doesn't, it's not the right package. Doesn't sound right, doesn't look right. You will always be shocked by where real talent lies, and you will always be shocked by even when you don't think that, even when they don't think that talent is there, given the challenge and the demand they will rise to the occasion. And I think, I think if you keep those things in mind along with what your job is, <laughs> you, the core of your job really is, if you keep that in mind, you know, you can't, you won't go wrong you
1: know skipper thanks i i can't tell you how much i appreciate you coming in and, and chatting for a while it's always good to see you and um it was a real honor to serve under your command at that time as as a reservist as a mobilized reservist and then uh, I was a civilian afterward for about a year under your command and thanks for your leadership and i really appreciate it thank you thank you Claude. and to our listeners thanks for joining us again for an episode of preble hall we hope you enjoyed it And please leave uh, feedback wherever you're listening to this. Have a great day and remember to hold fast. This too shall pass.
0: Treble Hall is in no way intended to reflect
1: the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.